Welcome to Severance Radio, a Nevada Reads on-air book club. I'm Heidi Kaiser. Over the course of 13 episodes, Severance Radio will dissect a single book, Severance, the satirical dystopian novel by Ling Ma. This book is a mixture of immigrant family story, corporate satire, and global health crisis. It's also the story of Candace Chen. Candace is a millennial first-generation American office drone who meanders her way into adulthood and ends up finding a world devoid of choice and feeling. During our live weekly radio broadcast, listeners heard an excerpt from the audiobook followed by discussions featuring literary luminaries, educators, and subject matter experts. For our podcast listeners, we leave out the book and cut straight to the conversation. Think of this as your own personal book club in podcast form. If you haven't read Severance yet, that's okay. These conversations are meant to serve as an accompaniment to the novel. Though, full disclosure, some of our guests, in addition to making insightful points, do indeed hint at plot spoilers. So read the book. Okay, got your book? Great. Let's get started. Nostalgia, Candace believes, may play a role in the onset of Shen fever. What lessons aren't we learning from history in this present moment? Joining us to talk about memory, loss, and the politics of forgetting are Hugh Shapiro and Clay T. D. White. Shapiro is a professor of Asian history at the University of Nevada, Reno. White is the inaugural director of the Oral History Research Center for UNLV Libraries. Hear them discuss the dead angles in our past when we look for ways to live during a pandemic. Enjoy. Clay T., I'd like to ask you about some of the resonant ideas in this excellent novel with contemporary phenomena that one might witness in the, in the prison system in the United States. So what I took away from this novel, how she is imprisoned without any kind of trial, but without being heard out, she doesn't get a chance to plead her case. This one man talks to a second man and her, her fate is sealed. So she is put in a prison. And today I see that still happening among the black population. We can even add other populations to that. But to the black population, we can look at 13% of African-Americans in this country and 40% in the prison population. There is something wrong with that. It is as if there is no justice. And as protesters are saying and have been saying for for years and years and years now, no justice, no peace. It sounds as if we're going over that same territory again, that there is no justice, the justice system is not just. And we see the same thing being written about in books like this book, Severance. We see the same idea coming back over and over again. Open the newspapers listen to any newscast. And we see that same thing happening today. Also in the sense, relating to c- contemporary uh, issues about incarceration, the role of, the, of broader public opinion. 
one thing that struck me about the characters in the novel is their willingness to submit to the crazy totalitarian authority of Bob, uh, who transgressed in so many flagrant ways, such as breaking breaking Candace's phone, uh, shooting one of their friends, and so on. So I think I think the 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 the, the resonance between incarceration and and a, a broader public willing to submit to unjust authority is also a, a, a resonant theme. Freedom is so important to this main character in the book, to Candace. Freedom is so very, very important to her. She stays in New York longer than anyone else. She roams the city, taking all kinds of photographs, yet she and other people just like her, as independent as she is, submit to Bob almost immediately without giving thought to it. And the book begins with, we didn't know anything. And that kind of plays out through the book. They allow someone else to take their freedom away. It's as if they don't know anything else. And they just let their freedom go so, so easily. Katie, that's such an interesting point. You, you mentioned how Candace would roam freely in the city. That's, that's one of the points I, I liked very much about the novel, how it, it runs counter to the more predictable zombie apocalypse narrative of cities being zones of death. Where for Candace, the city is the thing which will ultimately save her. She returns to the city. This whole, I don't know that much about zombies. Tell me more about this disease also that comes about in the Gilded Age. Oh, Clay T, thanks, thanks, for, uh, thanks for mentioning that. Yes, uh, late 19th century, there was a, a, an epidemic in the United States which morphed into a global pandemic, and the disease was called neurasthenia. Neurasthenia, which essentially means nervous weakness. And what's so fascinating about that condition was that there was a, a feeling of status that went along with contracting it. That if you succumb to neurasthenia, it suggested you were a, a worthy brain worker, that you were working so hard at, at, at important matters that you're exhausting your nervous vitality. And thus you, you suffered from this condition of neurasthenia. And what, the, what, what made me think of neurasthenia reading this book is all of the stigma that goes along with, with, with diseases that are communicated through communities, the, the, the very serious uh, stigma uh, that happens to a patient with neurasthenia it was the opposite. As I said, there was a certain amount of status and it, it was so ubiquitous in American cities. And again, the city is pathogen. It was so ubiquitous in, in late 19th century uh, United States, it became known as the American disease, but it, 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 it spread, it spread across the Atlantic to Europe. It took root in Europe, spread to Russia, from Russia to Japan, where it was known as, as Xinke Suijaku, and then it spread to China, where even today people remember it as, as Shenzhen Shuairua. So it's a, today we will look at something like neurasthenia as a, a psychological experience, some sort of neuropsychiatric distress. But, but in, in the original context, it was wholly concrete and tangible and physiological. It was a, it was, it was a somatic embodied experience uh, very much on level with other type of communicable diseases, such as as the plague. So I, I saw neurasthenia as an interesting counterpoint to a global pandemic, which uh, did not induce the type of uh, stigma and even racism, if you will, that one witnesses today. 
So, so we are not learning from history, <laughs> let alone the medical, mental, uh, our healthcare kind of uh, way of looking at a disease and what we should do to calm a disease or to cure it or to heal it. We don't learn anything. We're not learning from history. We just, we're just not learning. Well, what is wrong with us? So, so, but looking at history, when I look at the black community, because we are fighting the same battles over and over again, one of the things I admired about this book, I had to read so deeply to find race in the book. I enjoyed not knowing who was who. They were all people together surviving. But today, when I look at the world, we're not one like that anymore. Even though there was conflict, definitely among those nine people, all kinds of conflict. But there was also a togetherness, a oneness, and a way they looked at what they had to do to survive. It's not happening today. I, I, I so much agree with you. I, I think that's such an interesting point. You know, you, you Clayton, you raise this really interesting point about our failure to learn. And I wonder how much that has to do with the type of, of institutions, the type of social and economic structures we live with, such as, as the mall or the casino. Uh, and I know this is something you've worked on. I would love to hear your ideas regarding that aspect of, of the mall, the casino, and how these deep institutional uh, parameters condition our behavior and condition our experience. The thing that liberated Candace's mother early on was shopping. It kind of indoctrinated her to living in this country in a new way. The husband found that if he started taking her out and allowing her to enjoy their lives, that if he took her to a shopping center, a shopping mall, she could be happy. And she fell in love with America through that. Today, people fall in love with Las Vegas, Atlantic City, all kinds of cities, because now gambling is approved everywhere. So we fall in love with these places that give us that freedom that we don't normally have. That, that is so interesting, your point about shopping and, and commodity capitalism. It occurs to me that, that Candace, who had so, always been slightly alienated from her, her parents' culture, in the moment of embracing the cultural practice of her parents, it was precisely what you're saying. She was tearing images of, of commodities out of magazines and sending them, you know, very properly burning them and sending them to her, her ancestors in heaven. But it was yes. very much a commodity capitalist spiritual moment. It was, it was very interesting. And I like the idea of the of, of those special things like the coach purses and the special cars, the most expensive cars, what you would send to somebody in heaven. Yes, yes, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And, and you know, your, your ideas about the mall, mm -hmm. it's, it's also interesting that the chief totalitarian Bob is, is it's all about the mall. His end game is the mall. His end game is the mall. And it, that, and and even even it it, it sort of it, it sort of became a material when they finally reached their goal. It almost materialized as a what one might call a false god. Even Bob himself, even Bob the self chosen Messiah, looked up at it and thought, "Okay, this is <laughs> this is this is disappointing. This is not what I imagined." But but the mall reared him. 
when his parents broke up, sold the family house, it was the mall where he felt safe, where he could go, people in the mall would feed him. So that became home to him. And now to go back to this mall at this time in history where everything in the world is falling apart, the mall is about, or he thinks it is about to save him again and maybe save all of them. I thought one of the most sublime parts of the book were Candace's reflections on the Fujo night market. And again, a market is where people buy and sell things. And it, but it's there that I thought the artistic power of the book really came to life. It was, it was very sublime and very powerful and made one realize that night markets indeed are these really incredible liminal spaces where, that are full of potential. Yes. And when she's in, in China at one point and she wants to go walking, she gets into a cab and he said, oh, you want to go shopping. You want to go to a mall. So he takes her to a mall. This is where we live. This is where she said that I could buy all of these things in New York, but here in China, it is, it is also a liberating place to be. Yes, yes, yes. And, and, and of course, the richest man of the world is someone who, who, who brings things to our door, who brings our, <laughs> our things to our door. And he, was still, and he was still doing this, even though you had to wait two weeks. Later on, you had to wait a little while for those packages to come to your door. But it was one of the last things that kept New York alive. She was able to re remain, in her, remain in her apartment because she could get these deliveries at her door when nothing else was functioning. What do you, what do you think about the, the notion of that there weren't other survivors? I, that, that, was, that, that raised an interesting point of, of perspective, of perception that they, they very quickly concluded, well, we're the last people in the world. And that, I think that says something about how, how humans perceive situations. What you see is, 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 is reality. And, and of course, that could not be reality. I'm sure that someplace in California, someplace in Florida, that we had other survivors. But when you're all alone and everybody you run into are fevered, so you begin to think and you don't run into anyone else over this long trek that they take. So maybe, maybe there's something, something to that. Maybe they were the last ones. In a way, I love the way she stays in New York for as long as she absolutely can stay there. I think that says something about her, her tenacity, her love for a city and what a city does for you. Yes, yes. I love that too, Clayton. I also appreciated that she had an audience as she was maintaining her her New York Ghost blog. She had an audience who wanted her to continue. Right. It kept New York alive. She she kept New York alive to people all over the world as 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 long as we had an internet. And and I and that's why I was so sad when her cell phone was destroyed. Even though there was no more Google, no more internet, it was that that symbol that had been so powerful that kept this great city alive, that it was destroyed. So, so Hugh, I don't believe though that we are learning from history. Maybe Bob did learn something from his childhood and he was trying to bring it back. 
But today, I'm not sure we're learning from our history at all. For us to, again, be fighting for voting rights that John Lewis, who just passed away not very long ago, that he fought for 55 years ago. And now we are fighting for those same rights again. And we see them being curtailed and just taken away gradually. Not enough polling places, not allowing us to vote by mail, just tiny steps to take that away. So again, are we learning from history? Well, let me ask you this. Now that, now that we're contemplating big questions, <laughs> how, how sanguine do you feel about the survival of our species? How, how are you feeling? I guess I'm pretty hopeful. I guess I'm I have faith. I have faith that we are going to continue to survive, that we're going to find a way. I feel that we haven't done what we were put here to do yet. I feel that there is something bigger than what we are concentrating on. There's something more important than driving a Rolls Royce or wearing Gucci or carrying a coach purse. I think there is something more relevant. I'm not sure what that is, but I don't think we've gotten there yet. So I don't think we're gonna, I don't think it's gonna end yet. I think we have to do better. I think we have to become this place where we are one and we act, we act like it, that there's no such thing as systemic racism. There's no such thing as uh, discriminating against somebody because of where they grew up and that they crossed a border and now they are somehow illegal. I think I don't think we've done enough living and loving yet. I, I would, I absolutely agree with you. In terms of our consciousness, we're definitely sort of early, we're still early stage, I would agree. But I feel also sort of that it's a paradoxical situation. We might be early stage, but I also feel that we're, we're uh, playing with fire. We're playing with fire because definitely as, some, as someone said, I wish I knew who first said this because it was so perceptive that nature won't miss us. Nature won't miss us. We're, and we're, we're part of nature, clearly, but nature will go on. And uh, so I, I feel very paradoxical. I, I agree with you. I think we're still very young, uh, but also I think in terms of our relationship with the broader environment, we're, we're not young. So, so you think that plants and rocks and mountains will continue, maybe animals, but not mankind? Well, definitely. I mean, bacteria, viruses, I think they're they will rule the world. And, and you might even say they do already. In terms of biomass, I think there's probably more bacteria on the planet than there are humans. So I, yeah, I feel, I feel very humbled by our, our relationship with nature. So I, yeah, I, I think the wheel is spinning. I think the wheel is spinning. I think nature will be fine. I think nature will be fine. Okay, so what about those few of us that will survive? Well, okay, let me, let me uh, you know, do that impolite thing of, of responding to your question with a question. <laughs> so will this, will this 12 people, will there be a leader? Will there be a Bob? How can we avoid having a Bob? That's right. Yeah. So, so all of us have to love ourselves enough mm. to know what's right 
and and to be independent enough not to have to depend upon Bob. Right. <laughs> 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 Thanks so much to Clay T.D. White and Hugh Shapiro for a discussion to remember. Next time on Severance Radio, we'll hear two professors, one of them a motorcyclist, talk about solitary life in a pandemic. Severance is a 2020 Nevada Reads book selection. Nevada Reads is a statewide book club that invites readers from across the Silver State to come together and share in the love of reading. Severance Radio, a Nevada Reads Book Club, is produced by the Beverly Rogers, Carol C. Harder, Black Mountain Institute, and Nevada Humanities. Support from the Nevada Center for the Book, the Institute of Museum and Library Services, the Nevada State Library, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Our engineer is Phil Corbett. Our writer is Sara Ortiz. Production by Lily Allen, Mira Arith, Stephanie Gibson, Kathleen Kuo, and Layla Muhammad. And I'm your host, Heidi Kaiser. Thanks for listening.